Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. In today's episode, we're saying happy Christmas with some year-end reminders for our financial reporting preparers. And I am joined in the studio by not one, not two, but three of the amazing IFRS technical partners in PwC. All been in the podcast studio before. We've got Tony DeBell, Sandra Thompson and Mary Dolson. Welcome back, everybody. I'm going to start with Tony. Tony, tell us a little bit, ready for year end, what should we be looking out for for IFRS 15? The IASB has been very good with IFRS 15, and they haven't made any changes to the standards since the clarifications were issued in the first half of last year. However, I guess there has to be a but. Uh, and the but is that after nearly four years, revenue questions have suddenly started to appear in front of the Interpretations Committee. We discussed an issue in September in connection with revenue and real estate. Uh, we've also been talking about the intersection of the revenue standard and IS 37 in connection with onerous contracts with customers. Now, these are all things that I think preparers should continue to be aware of and keep up to date with as the discussions at the Interpretations Committee develop, because I think the Interpretations Committee's views are going to apply just beyond the narrow question that's been asked. And so it will be good for companies to be aware of the way the committee thinks the standard ought to be applied. However, all of that is obviously forward-looking, so going into 2018 when the standard is applied. I think the most immediate imperative for companies looking forward to 31st December 2017 year ends is around disclosures. I see that the ESMA issued its year-end enforcement priorities for 2017, and one of those priorities was disclosures in connection with new standards. I think that's actually a timely reminder for companies everywhere, not just companies in Europe, of the need to make disclosures in the 2017 financial statements of the impact of new standards, including IFRS 15. So it's, it's no longer credible or tenable for management to say that the project is in progress, because by the time the 2017 financial statements are issued, they're going to be applying the standard. They're going to be recognising revenue, capturing transactions in accordance with IFRS 15. And so I think it's important that, that companies include comprehensive disclosures that explain the areas in which their accounting is different, Uh, perhaps some of the judgments that they've made to determine their accounting policies or to determine the actual accounting that they apply and provide quantification of the impact of the standard. One of the specific disclosures that I think uh, companies ought to think about is around transition. So firstly, what transition method has been adopted? Is it the full retrospective approach or the modified retrospective approach where IFRS 15 is only applied from the 1st of January 2018. The comparatives aren't restated. And also the transition expedients that companies have applied. So there are a number of expedients that are designed to facilitate moving on to the new standard. And it's important to disclose which of those have been applied. My sense is that transition and and, um, transition expedients are often left to the end of the transition process. So I think it will be good for companies to focus on those as well as the rest of the disclosures as they run up to the end of the year. 
yeah, work out the debits and credits and then they think about transition. So definitely it's not good enough anymore to just say we're still ass- assessing the process when one day later it's supposed to be effective. I think is a key takeaway there. Okay, moving on to away from the new standards and into your other areas of expertise, Tony, any other standards where there's been a change or there's going to be a change people should be aware of for the 31st of December? A couple of things that are, that are probably worth folks thinking about, starting with my favourite topic, which is income taxes. And everybody will be aware that the Interpretations Committee issued an interpretation, IFRI 23, earlier on this year. Uh, IFRI 23 addresses tax uncertainties. Now, that's not effective until the 1st of January 2019. However, the transition guidance says that you can only apply the standard retrospectively if you can do so without the use of hindsight. And so if companies are thinking about wanting to apply it retrospectively, then the sooner they start making decisions, the better. I think the other thing that that, that, um, IFRIC 23 has thrown up is the question of interest and penalties. And so uh, IFRIC 23 does not address interest and penalties. And the committee got a question after it was issued, suggesting that the committee should issue some guidance on the accounting for interest and penalties on tax uncertainties. Now, the committee decided that the costs of developing guidance would not outweigh the benefits for something that is largely, not entirely, but largely a presentation issue. However, the agenda decision that confirmed that conclusion is very clear that there is no policy choice. So companies have to decide whether interest and penalties meet the definition of an income tax, in which case they would apply IS-12. If they do not meet the definition of an income tax, then they would apply IS-37. I think this means that there are, for some companies, that are going to consider which standard they fall under, decide they fall under IS-37, and therefore uh, interest will be a finance cost, and penalties will be an operating expense. Now, obviously, the impact is largely presentation. There could be measurement and recognition differences, but it's largely presentation. The important thing is that it's an agenda decision. So there's no effective date, so it's effective now. So companies are going to have to think about it ahead of 31st December and decide how they're going to classify and present their uh, interest and penalties. Wow, so important every year. And I think, um, you know, something we talked about before is IFRIC decisions can sometimes get missed. So it's really important that you read that decision. I presume you've got an in-brief out on pwc.com forward slash I for us as well. We do. We issued an in-brief probably four or five weeks ago. Great. Okay, so something to go to. Any other things we should look out for in terms of disclosure? Yeah, just one more. Uh, There's an amendment to IS7, so the disclosures in connection with the cash flow statement that is effective in 2017. So this addresses a long-standing grumble of users of financial statements uh, that they couldn't track the movements from opening borrowings to closing borrowings. So they got the cash flows, but that's not the whole story. And so the ISB has responded to that and has introduced an additional disclosure requirement into IS7 which requires a disclosure that allows users to understand the movements in liabilities that arise from financing activities. So effectively, opening borrowings to closing borrowings uh, in a way that explains the cash movements, new drawdowns, repayments, and non-cash movements, for example, exchange differences or the impact of business acquisitions and disposals. The requirement is for disclosure that explains those things, 
Easiest way is probably a tabular reconciliation of opening to closing, but that's not mandatory. And so it could be done through narrative disclosure or whatever. The key thing is that the disclosure is required and it's effective in 2017. Interestingly, this disclosure requirement was included in ESMA's um, enforcement priorities for 2017, which is unusual because it hasn't actually been endorsed. All of the steps in the process before the actual endorsement have happened, but the formal endorsement has not happened. Uh, the fact that ESMA has included it, so for companies in, in Europe, I think this implies that endorsement is going to be retrospective and that when it is endorsed, there'll be a requirement to apply it in 2017 financial statements. I'm not sure about that, but the fact that ESMA's included it means I think companies in the EU need to be aware that um, this change to IS7 applies in 2017. Yeah, they sound supportive if they've put it in. And I must admit, I love being able to tick and time. I brought fours to my carry forwards, so I'm a big fan. Okay, thank you, Tony. So, Sandra, Tony just mentioned there a little bit about IFRS 15 and what to look out for on for the 31st of December. Let's move to another new standard. IFRS 9 is obviously there as well. What do people need to do before their year ends? Thanks very much, Ruth. And it's a very good question because actually there are some things that companies need to do pre-year end. So it's very topical. So though IFRS 9 doesn't apply till 2018, there are certain things that are assessed on the 1st of January 2018, so the first date you adopt the new standard. I've got four things to talk about. So the first is business models. That's whether financial assets are held to collect or held to collect and sell or in the other business model. That's a judgmental assessment, but it's based on how management actually manages those assets when the company first adopts, so 1st of January 2018. It's particularly relevant when you've got companies that sell some assets and hold some assets. Two examples, um, it's quite usual for corporates to factor their debts, and they may factor some debts but not others. And then the banking space, banks have liquidity portfolios, and now they may have some of that portfolio where they have regular sales to manage day-to-day liquidity needs. And then the kind of bottom rump that they only sell in, say, in a financial crisis. Now, the question for those kinds of, of books is, do you have one business model or two? And that will depend on how management manages the assets on the 1st of January 2018. So there is obviously a window of opportunity there for companies to look at the assets they have and say, well, can I actually show I'm managing these two groups of assets separately? And therefore, the ones where there aren't any sales, those can be held to collect an amortised cost. But they need to do that before 1st of January 2018, (laughs) so now. can't wait. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are some optional designations in IFRS 9. Again, need to be made when you first apply the standard. Two biggest ones, all equity investments now have to be measured at fair value, but there's a one-time option election to report them at fair value through OCI. And if that isn't elected, then it's fair value through P&L as a default. So again, make sure you do that before the 1st of January if that's the the classification you want. And then secondly, fair value options, probably more in the the banking financial services space. But there is a a one-time opportunity when you first adopt IFRS 9 to redo fair value options. So make the most of that opportunity. Moving on, the third thing will be hedge accounting. I couldn't talk about IFRS 9 without talking about hedge accounting. There's some good things in IFRS 9 when it comes to hedge accounting. So there's various things companies can do now that they couldn't previously that will give them less PL volatility. So, for example, they can hedge components of non-financial items, we've talked about before. There's a new cost of hedging model for things like cross-currency basis. If you've got long-term foreign currency hedges, very useful. Forward points in forward contracts or time value of options. 
But all those have to be elected and your hedge designations have to match what you want to do. And as ever with hedge accounting, you live or die by what you designated. <laughs> so if you didn't designate it, you can't do it. So if you want to take advantage of those new optional hedge accounting, then you need to do it 1st of January 2018 again. And then the final fourth point I'll touch on is disclosures. And Tony touched on this earlier. In 2017 financial statements, there's a requirement to disclose the impact of new standards not yet adopted. Very hot topic. Tony mentioned ESMA. ESMA's not the only regulator looking at this. The SEC, some other regulators too. And I think particularly the timing is very pertinent now. Many companies will issue their quarter ones. Not long after they issue their 2017 financial statements, is it really tenable to say you can't quantify the impact in your 2017 financial statements and then issue your Q1s a few weeks later when you are actually applying IFRS 9 or 15? What are regulators looking for? Well, they're looking for something entity-specific. We can all read IFRS 9. We don't need the positive summary. Something that really describes how it impacts this entity. So if you're using the practical expedience, say that. What are the key judgments? Whether that's around how you've done the impairment model, what's the significant increase in credit risk, how you've incorporated forward-looking information, health sales have impacted the business model, all those kinds of key judgments. Something disaggregated, so ESMAs, for example, said they expect to see each of classification and measurement and impairment and hedge accounting done separately. And then, of course, the numbers, quantified, not just, not just the qualitative descriptions. And in fact, ESMA did a very interesting fact-finding study looking at disclosures by 50 banks up to June 2017 interims <laughs> or June 2016 financial statements. And that showed for the 50 banks they looked at, which were all sizes, about two-thirds of them had done something entity-specific, okay. which is quite encouraging. Yeah, and actually, 20% of them had quantified the impact in some shape or form. So that's just up to June 2017. Yeah. I think the expectation is those disclosures will have moved on, and the people who haven't done something entity-specific need to do so. And indeed, numbers of companies quantifying will be a lot higher at year-end. Yeah, and I think something we talked about before, Sandra, is you mentioned banks there. But IFRS 9 is not just about banks. Even Very if you're a corporate, so. we're expecting a you know a, a stronger disclosure around your process and your impacts. Yeah, very much so. Very important point. The IS8 requirement is the same. And we said before, you know, some corporates assume it only applies to banks or it'll only have an impact on banks. Yeah. That we're finding is just not the case. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, now, so on to Mary. So we've talked a little bit about newer standards, IFRS 15 and 9. What about some of our old favourites? What should we always be looking out for year ends, but also, you know, topical for 31st of December 2017? What do you think I'm going to say, Ruth? Well, my, one of my favourite standards, I'm Impairment. imagining. Yay. <laughs> our favourite topic. I, I think it's always worth reminding uh, engagement teams and our clients not to leave the impairment until, you know, you shouldn't be testing impairment in January or early yeah. February, right? So get your impairment testing done now. Right? Yeah. And then make the disclosures that the standard asks for because the regulators are really good at reading the standard and they can go down the list and say, oh, you haven't made the following six disclosures. Please provide us more information. It's just leaving a loose thread in the carpet for them to pull, right? And they go, whoosh and they unravel the whole thing. Right? Sorry, nobody, you couldn't see my important was gestures. <laughs> I, I think the other thing is everybody knows it's practically impossible to do pre-tax cash flows using a pre-tax discount rate. So if you're actually doing your value and use using a post-tax number, right? 
be prepared to front up to the regulator with your model and explain how you've actually approximated the requirements of the standard. Because anytime they really want to trouble a preparer of financial statements, it's their favorite bit to take out and say, oh, you said you've done this, but actually I note that you used a post-tax mm -hmm. rate. Right? So <laughs> I, I'm not saying I have a better idea of how to do it. Be prepared to answer the question. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, from experience, regulators do like impairment, and it's they quite do. an easy one to pick on. You can always, yeah, because questions. nobody wants to make all of the disclosures, yeah. and to the extent that a company is vague or yeah. kind of skips past some of this crucial stuff, they leave the question there for the regulator to ask. If you make all the disclosures, they're only kind of the only thing they have left is to disagree with you. Yeah. And that's a really hard discussion to win, right? as we all know, because we talk to clients about impairment yeah. calculations all the time. Once you're into arguing about what they actually did, then you're having a completely different discussion. So make all your disclosures. Don't leave many easy questions yeah. to ask. Don't have so. one discount rate for every Everything single CDU. Everything across the world. <laughs> easy all my ask. different business units. <laughs> same risk. Same risk. <laughs> really, not so, not so true. I, I think the other interesting thing is that ESMA, the European Securities Regulator, has said we're going to focus on IFRS 3 this year, which, you know, we've been applying IFRS 3 for, I want to say, eight or nine years now. 2009, 2009, something like that. And so we should all be fairly competent at it, you <laughs> would think. But ESMA has come back and talked about the things where they are doing enforcement actions and that's primarily around intangibles, recognition of intangibles. They asked the unit of account question, you know how I love unit of account, because they did an enforcement action that said, you recognize the dealer network and said, it renews, so it's got an indefinite life. And they're like, uh, 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 we'll allow you to recognize it separate from goodwill because it's contractual legal. Yeah. Right? You sign contracts with your dealers. But you don't sign contracts with the network. You sign contracts with the dealers one at a time. And that's an important distinction because I said, therefore, you need to, it's not indefinite life because no contractual relationship is going to be indefinite life. And your unit of account is the individual dealer. So go away and you need to amortize and you need to change your unit of account. It's not a monolithic thing. So they're focused on intangibles. And then all the other parts of the standard that preparers hate and, you know, it's like, oh, no. So they're talking about bargain purchase gains. Mm -hmm. So if you've got negative goodwill, make the disclosures, explain how you went back around the house again, yeah, and made sure <laughs> that you recognized all your assets and liabilities and you didn't overvalue or undervalue anything, and explain what is the basis of the, of the, the bargain purchase. If you ever have a surprising bargain purchase, you need to call somebody and ask for professional help, professional <laughs> assistance, because you shouldn't have a bargain purchase that surprises you. You should understand what the economics are that got you to that outcome, and then you need to disclose those. What else do they talk about? What, what else does everybody love to hate? Consideration oh, versus, versus compensation. compensation, right? <laughs> compensation goes in the income statement. Consideration ends up in the big lumpy goodwill number on the balance sheet. So what yeah. do we want? People want it to be consideration. Sadly, it's compensation a lot more than we like to admit. So they're focusing on that. Yeah. The other thing is they have reminded people that there isn't, IFRS doesn't tell you what to do for a mandatory tender offer. Okay. The question is, is it one transaction? Is it yeah. two transactions? And actually, ESMA describes it as a policy choice. I, I wouldn't have necessarily said it's a policy choice. I think it's 
you need to figure out what's appropriate in the circumstances you're in, but they've described that as a policy choice. So they're looking at some of the aspects of IFRS 3, where they're still doing lots of enforcement actions, where people kind of like to look the other way. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. <laughs> but, uh, it can't be that complicated. <laughs> it, it, it really is that complicated. The other interesting thing is they've suggested more disclosures around fair value measurements in the business combination, because okay. IFRS 13 doesn't include IFRS 3 yes. purchase accounting okay. measurements, yep. but they've said that they want their uh, issuers to look at 125 to 129 of IS1, which is sources of measurement uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. She knows every paragraph reference. <laughs> Not only the Just ones the I have to use, right? Only the ones I have to use. And, you know, it might be relevant information, again, where it's about, it, where it's a source of measurement uncertainty. I don't think it's ongoing measurement uncertainty. I think it's probably, you know, estimations and measurement uncertainty in the period you do the yeah. business combination. Perfect. So this year end, I suppose if you have had a business combination during the year, it's just really make sure you you fully understand what's going on in IFRS 3 and then you put a nice transparent disclosure so that yes. you don't get a question from the yes. regulator. Okay, thank you, Mary. That brings us to the end of our year-end reminders. So happy Christmas for all those people that are listening in December. We will be back in January to give you more from PwC IFRS Talks. Lots of information about the topics we discussed today on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting and happy Christmas. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.